No, Superman Forever Radio, the weekly podcast devoted to Superman. And welcome to Superman Forever Radio. This is episode 20. I'm your mild-mannered host, J. David Weeder, and this is the debut of the twice-a-week format. This is where we actually, the, this being the first Thursday episode, it means it's a review episode. So this is the first time we've done two episodes in a week. Now, if you've been following along, uh, we're going month by month through every Superman comic published since Infinite Crisis in 2006, and this week brings us to April of 2007. And before we begin, I do have two notes. One, due to an error on my part, I pulled Action Comics 847 out and did it with the books of March 2007, when in fact its cover date was April of 2007. Therefore, it should have been on this week's review show. So, it's e- I mean, it's easy to forget that the, with this era there were a lot of delays and I wasn't watching closely enough. And that means, in conjunction with Superman Batman being delayed, we will only have two books to review this week. Which brings us to note number two. I have a new rating system specifically for the comics we review here. Now, tra- uh, traditionally, I've used the S-Shield system on a scale of 1 to 5, with 5 being the best. Now I'll have a slightly different approach. The new ratings are as follows. At the bottom, being essentially 1, we have Leave It on the Shelf. And if I give this rating to an issue, don't bother picking it up, or thumbing through it, or acknowledging its existence. And moving up is Quarter Bin. If you run across this issue, and it's cheap, and you have nothing else in the world to do, it could be an adequate time killer, but not by any means essential or necessarily sought after. Next up on the list is Wait for the Trade. This means an issue is worth reading, even worth tracking down, but not a priority, and it can wait, but give it a whirl. Next up is Pull List. This issue is worthy of your time and attention, worth tracking down, above average, and recommended. And these would be the standout single issues that would pretty much sway me to put the book on my pull list, if even on a probationary basis. And at the top of the heap is Slabbit. This is an issue to be sought after, uh, must read, must have, CGC graded. It's that rare find that hits on all gears and can't come recommended highly enough. So that's the new rating system for commas going forward. And let's not delay it any further. Any further, without further ado, let's jump into the Superman books for April of 2007. Right after this promo for another quality podcast. Boys and girls, your attention, please. Presenting a new exciting radio program featuring the thrilling adventures of an amazing and incredible personality. Faster than a speeding bullet. Thrilling Adventures of Superman, a journey through the golden age of the Man of Steel in comics, radio, and film. Available at GreatCrypton.com And we're going to kick off April of 2007 with Superman number 661, Dangerous Lady. Scripted, co-plotted, and layouts by Kurt Busiek and Richard Howell. Finished art by Eduardo Barreto. Colored by Lee Lowridge. 
lettered by Richard Starkings, edited by Matt Idelson and Nachi Castro, Superman created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster, Wonder Woman created by William Moulton Marston. And the issue opens at the Schuster Arena in Metropolis, with Wonder Woman putting on an exhibition of her strength at a fundraiser for the Jadis Foundation, where Lois and Clark are in attendance, unofficial coverage capacity for the Daily Planet. The Jadis Foundation helps women in need, and Lois comments to Clark that it's great that Wonder Woman is repairing her reputation with these appearances after the hullabaloo last year, which hullabaloo seems to be the word of this issue. It's used twice in that page. After wrapping up her appearance, Wendy takes a few minutes to talk to the Kents before arranging to meet with them and do an interview later that night at the Metropolis Museum of Art. So later, at the museum, Diana, in her new secret identity, shows Lois and Clark around the displays in the Wonders of Antiquity exhibit, which features art based on mythology, which is kind of right up Wonder Woman's Avenue. The interview doesn't really get far, as a striking woman barges into the museum, smashes one of the cases open, and grabs a bracelet, yelling to a man named Fitton about the museum's audacity at loaning her back her own baubles. And Clark steps forward, grabbing the woman's wrist and trying to calm her down, but the woman senses Clark's immense solar power inside of him and disintegrates his tuxedo right in the middle of the museum. Diana lunges into action to stop the woman, who seems to be draining Superman's powers, but is thrown across the room into the wall of the museum. Lois helps Diana to her feet, and somewhere off the page, the woman disappears with Clark. And they deduce from the crowd's reaction that nobody was paying attention to Clark before the woman dissolved the tux and revealed the Superman suit underneath it, so his secret identity is conveniently safe again. And Lois and Diana use Lois's connection to the Daily Planet to deduce that the woman is Kirana, the accursed. And Wonder Woman explains that Kirana was a woman that Zeus tried to put the Mac on, only to be rebuffed that she needed no man to please her. So Zeus cursed her to need the touch of men to live, forcing her to feed on them almost like a vampire. And so she compulsively lures men in, feeds on them until they're nothing but a withered husk of sorts, and then throws them away. And the two drop into a cyber cafe and search further and find that the generations of the Jadis family, whom the foundation is named for, have all been Karana using multiple identities. And currently, she is known as Hermia Jadis, and she's in the phone book. So Wonder Woman flies to the 1419 Holloway Square while Lois rounds up the science police. Superman, very weakened from what Karana has drained from him, sits on a couch trying to warn Diana about how dangerous Karana is. Wonder Woman tries to reason with Karana, telling her that they can appeal to the female gods, but Karana doesn't seem interested because she punches Wonder Woman again. And Karana has the upper hand on Wonder Woman until Superman manages to step in and help Wonder Woman, during his, turning it into a three-way fight, which has Superman thrown into a, through a wall into another room where the heads of Karana's victims sit. She's kept them as trophies, which is a bit macabre for a Superman book, but... Karana's motivation is more than simple hunger. She also has a deep hatred of men, having seen the women victimized by them throughout time, generation after generation. And Wonder Woman tries to tackle Karana, only to find that Karana can drain the energy out of women too. And once again, Superman tries to help Wendy, but Karana begins to drain both of them now, which has a disastrous effect. As Superman's solar energy... And Diana's magical energy don't mix, which we've learned in the past. And the two heroes take the opportunity to finish out the weekend Karana, and the science police come to take her away. 
and the issue ends back at 1938, Sullivan Place, where Lois tells the two, now back in their civilian gear somehow, which apparently happened off-panel as well, that stopping Karana is ironic, in that she was a victim of men, helping other women who are victims of men. So getting her off the streets, yeah, sure, it took a, ki- took a killer off the streets, but it will end up allowing more women to be victimized. And as Lois brings a tray back into the living room, she finds that Clark and Diana are fast asleep on the couch from utter exhaustion, and the issue ends. So the Man of Steel teams up with Wonder Woman again. This isn't the first time they've met up following Infinite Crisis, but it's a pretty good standalone team-up story despite itself. Uh, Wonder Woman made her first appearance way back in All-Star Comics number 8 in December 1941, created to be, and I quote from creator William Moulton Marston, a distinctly feminist role model whose mission was to bring the Amazon ideals of love, peace, and sexual equality to a world torn by the hatred of men. End quote. This is a nice ideal to adhere to, despite the fact that Wonder Woman ended up being in bondage for many of her early appearances. Now, Marston was a Harvard-educated psychologist who invented the systolic blood pressure test, which is a key component to the polygraph or lie detector test. And after seeing an interview in the family circle with him called Don't Laugh at the Comics, Marston saw, basically talked about the educational potential of comic books in that. After seeing that interview, Max Gaines, the then publisher of DC Comics, hired Marston as an educational consultant. And Marston came up with an idea of a character who would fight evil, not with fists, but with love. It was Marston's wife, Elizabeth, that would insist on the character being a woman. And Wonder Woman was greatly inspired, actually, by Marston's wife and by their polyamorous partner, Olive Byrne. Yeah. Using the pen name Charles Moulton, Marston created, uh, basically developed the character called Suprema, who would combine all of the might and power of Superman with the allure of a good and beautiful woman. There's no downside on that, people. And editor Sheldon Mayer, he, he changed the name. He didn't like it. So it changed the name to Wonder Woman. Character made her first appearance in 1941, and by the middle of 1942, she had her own series. And in her early appearances, Wonder Woman fought the Axis powers in World War II, but as time progressed, she would develop to fight more common comic book villains. And Diana comes from Themyscira, which is an island populated by all female Amazonian warriors. And unable to bear children, her mother Hippolyta forms the image of a child out of clay, and it comes to life. And as Diana comes of age, she wins the right to visit man's world. Now, the reasoning for this, and of course, there's of course variations on the origin as a whole, but the reasoning for her visit to the man's world actually varies greatly. In some, she's simply to return the pilot slash love interest Steve Trevor to our world. In other versions, notably the post-crisis version, she sent it as, as an ambassador to open up diplomatic relations with the outside world. As for William Moulton Marston, he died of cancer just short of his 54th birthday in May of 1947. But his creation lives on, though. Wonder Woman, her comics have been in print since her debut, and she would appear in other forms as well, such as the animated Super Friends and Justice League, as well as their own live-action television series starring Linda Carter. 2009 saw the release of a direct-to-DVD animated film and a new television series is currently filming under David E. Kelly, creator of Mount Ally McBeal in which that costume looks horrid. I'm just going to comment on it, because how many, how often do I get to comment on Wonder Woman on a Superman podcast? So why am I talking about Wonder Woman, speaking of? 
Well, she's part of the big tri- uh, trio, Superman, Batman, and Wonder Woman. So she does factor in very greatly into the mythology, especially with Superman. And she, the relationship with her and Superman, you know, it's she's one of the few women not related to Kal-El who can match Superman in power and compassion. And Diana, I mean, she has super strength, flight, and vulnerability on par with a Kryptonian. And then she also has that lasso of truth, which forces those that are bound by it not to lie. And with that, there's been a lot said for the relationship of Superman and Wonder Woman. A lot of it has been said in the pages of comics. Uh, this is, it's led a lot of writers, as far as her power and, and fans, to believe that she may be a more ideal mate for Superman than Lois. And that's an idea that John Byrne toyed with early in his run on Superman, implying a tra- an attraction, which quickly turned to friendship and mutual respect. Now, the 1996 story Kingdom Come would show the two becoming a couple after years of delaying what seemed like the inevitable, and Frank Miller's Dark Knight Strikes Again would also have the two come together and produce a daughter. Now, it's important to note that neither of these stories are in continuity, and after the burn, early, very early part of the burn era, it was, there was never, there's never any, been any further implications of any romantic feelings between the two heroes in continuity beyond that. Now, right before Infinite Crisis, Wonder Woman made her first, or pardon me, would find her public perception altered greatly by killing Maxwell Lord in order to free the mind-controlled Superman from his influence, which is the hullabaloo that was referenced early in the story, in this issue. Shortly after that, she would assume the secret identity of Diana Prince, working for the Department of Metahuman Affairs and ironically investigating Wonder Woman, which kind of brings us to where Wonder Woman was in terms of the context for this issue. As far as Superman 661 is concerned, it's a pretty okay standalone issue, but it has no real consequences to the overall continuity. It can be skipped. It marks the first and only appearance to date of Kirana, who seems to be a villain well-fitted for a one-off encounter. Not that Kirana wasn't interesting, but this issue pretty much says everything that needs to be said on the character. And a lot of the issue really revolves oddly around the relationship of Lois as kind of a bystander or a third party to the Wonder Woman-Superman dynamic. It would be really easy for a normal woman to be jealous of Diana and Superman. The two have an entirely different context than Lois and Clark do. And Lois comments several times on how beautiful Diana is and how sh- Lois may or may not be able to fill out the star-spangled undies of the Amazonian princess, which Clark avoids answering. The good thing is, Lois isn't jealous. She knows Clark better than that. Clark is a loyal friend, but he's a far more loyal husband and, in general, a good man. And Diana is also driven by honor and valor, and honestly, the idea of infidelity has never crossed their minds, more than likely. That's just not how they operate. Now, while that's not at the forefront of the issue, it's definitely in the subtext. And overall, the story was very reminiscent of, of, of the Bronze or Silver Age. It's simple, relatively straightforward, and standalone. And I like that anybody could have picked this issue up off the stands and followed it fairly, fairly effortlessly. The art, however, was off. I've been over and over the issue several times, and I can't put my finger on what it is. The art has a feel between Joe Kubert and Jack Kirby, which should make me ooh and ah, but it doesn't. And I think it simply sits on the page, and it does a fair job of telling the story without standing on its own. And while I may like the standalone issue, it doesn't make proper use of the characters. Much of the issue has Wonder Woman and Lois doing internet research or looking at museum pieces. 
And while it's fairly fun, uh, it never really got in gear or exploded with the the character dynamics in any way beyond simple glancing hints. And Superman isn't even in most of the issue beyond sitting on a couch moaning and kind of stepping up at the very end. And that is the big downfall of Superman 661. It's a pretty lackluster issue, never goes anywhere. Therefore, I give it a rating of quarter bin. If you find it for a cheap price, think about picking it up, but don't go out of your way uh, to find it. And one more note on Superman 661. It shows that next month with 662, we will finally see the crypto issue that was solicited a while back. The cover is even shown on the DC Nation page. I'm just going to soften the blow and just let you know we will not see that story in our next installment. Instead, we'll actually launch into Camelot Falls Book 2. So I just wanted to let you know and be upfront about that just so we're completely clear. And let's do another promo and come back with Superman Confidential number 4. Up in the sky. It's a bird. It's a plane. No, it's supermanhomepage.com, the number one Superman fan site in the world. Supermanhomepage.com, covering the world of Superman from the 1930s to today. News, reviews, rumors, and reports. Supermanhomepage.com, for all your Superman comics, TV shows, movies, cartoons, radio shows, and more. Everything you ever wanted to know about the man of and more. SupermanHomePage.com And here we are at our second review of the week, Superman Confidential number 4, which is Kryptonite Part 4. The story and art by Darwin Cook and Tim Sale, with colors by Dave Stewart, letters by Richard Starkings, edited by Mike Chiarello and Tom Palmer Jr. Superman created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster. And before this issue picks up where number 3 ended... We have another flashback to the meteor in the hands of Gallo, who has killed his mother, which the meteor, or what's inside the meteor, notes that Gallo has no emotions inside of him. And it seems that inside this meteor, whatever it is, it has some sort of psychic connection to him, which is why Gallo takes it with him when he burns down his home and the village around him and heads for the United States to open casinos, which the meteor creature appreciates since it brings him closer to the Kryptonian. Speaking of the Kryptonian... He is still falling with his life flashing before his eyes, literally, after rushing to stop a robbery on Luther's armored trucks. And Superman feels like he's going to die and prays to live as he plummets to the ground where armored robbers await Superman. Meanwhile, in the office of Anthony Gallo, we see the meteorite as Tony enters and stands before it in a trance. And Superman crashes to the ground, and the robbers equipped with neuroscramblers and plasma feeds in their gauntlets begin to just beat the ever-loving out of a weakened Superman as Luther watches through a video feed. And Luther notes that the equipment can't be that effective and something else is in play, but he doesn't know what it is. And back in Gallo's office, the voice of his secretary breaks the trance to tell him he has a call, and he exits out of the meteor chamber to take it, closing the door behind him. And this effectively cuts off Superman from the kryptonite, allowing him to fight back and finish up the armored robbers, which happens mostly off-panel. Jimmy Olsen runs to Superman's aid, finding him in a bad shape in a crater. So Jimmy helps Superman out of it and flags down a truck, and Superman tells Jimmy he doesn't want Lois to see him in this condition. Lois, meanwhile, tells Perry that she thinks Gallo is on the up-and-up, and Perry insists that Lois digs deeper to the story and not to be influenced by Gallo's charm. As Lois leaves the office, a smarmy reporter gives Ogilvy, named Ogilvy is sent in, having waited outside Perry's office the whole time, not that he was eavesdropping. 
and Jimmy drives Superman away from the scene, and Superman asks Jimmy to take him to Clark Kent's apartment, because he trusts him. And while Lois returns to the printing shop only to be accosted by Luthor in his limousine, Luthor shows Lois the video of Superman being pounded to a pulp, and insists that he's going to find out what hurt the Man of Steel. And Ogilvy comes to Gallo to clear up his marker of $90,000 by sharing with Gallo that Lois has been investigating him for the Daily Planet, which perks Gallo's interest, that's for sure. And Superman dreams of Krypton exploding and flying with Lois under the red sun before Jimmy awakens to help him to Clark's apartment. And Jimmy knocks on the door with Superman hunched over his shoulders and Clark can't answers? And then that's the awkward end. The more I read this storyline, the more it plays out like it should have been a standalone graphic novel than presented in issue form. When the Superman Confidential book and the Batman Confidential book was rolled out, they were supposed to tell incontinuity tales of, of early days of the characters or indeterminate time period. And I think we've proven in terms of continuity with certain projects like Secret Origin, things like that, that this, this story just doesn't jive. When you... We're going to get to Superman Confidential sooner rather than later, I hope, <laughs> at this rate. So we'll kind of talk about how this doesn't jive a little bit more there. But it it really should, it seems like it should have been a standalone graphic novel, and that's not a criticism against the story as a whole, because I actually do enjoy it. I really enjoyed this book at the time. But it does hurt the reading of experience on a single issue. The industry right now, I mean, it is geared towards trades. A decade ago... There wasn't such a strong ideal of, I'll wait for the trade. You either got the issues or you didn't. If you missed them, then you got the trade. But the rise of trades as a legitimate way of collecting comics, that really came into play in the last five to seven years. Now, I have nothing against trades. It comes off that way from time to time. But I think it's a fine way to get full stories and create substantial reading experience. And I have trades myself. However... Comic companies shouldn't bite the hand that feeds, namely those of us that buy the books monthly, in order to please those that wait for the mass market collections. Sure, it makes for a smoother reading experience in one single collection, but what about us? Where I'm paying three bucks a pop for these, and where where's my money going? I want to see a substantial issue. That's my goal. Now, this chapter in particular suffers from being essentially an expository chapter. Reading it as a whole in the story is one thing. Reading it as a single issue is frustrating. Beyond Superman's off-panel fight with the armored robber, most of this issue was dialogue and talking heads. And it just serves to solidify where we've been and set up where we're going, which is pretty normal storytelling. And this issue also suffered, suffered from a rougher art than what we've seen in the past three issues. Admittedly, Cook and Sale have very different stylized art forms than, than the norm, separately and together, but that can cause problems. And I'm not sure if the art was supposed to look so unfinished. I could see with the theme it would make sense, but it really bothered me. The crisp, semi-animated feel of the book, it has dissolved frequently into a Frank Miller style. It comes off really sloppy. I mean, there were some standout scenes in terms of both art and stories, such as the Krypton dream sequence and the Anthony Gallo flashback. And it seems like the character of Gallo has drawn very sharply... Lois still looks good, but Superman and the backgrounds and a lot of the Luthor scenes just look off. They're just not syncing up from page to page. Ultimately, the issue doesn't look or feel like a substantial full issue. 
and does very little to really advance the story forward, instead relying on stretching out what could have been half an normal issue, maybe a little less, into very awkwardly into a full issue, ending with a cliffhanger that was not really a cliffhanger. So I'm going to rate Superman Confidential number four, Quarter Band. If you find it, fine. But it just designed to breed and trade, which makes us suffer. So let's play another promo and come back with some emails. Rocketed as a baby from the exploding planet Krypton, Kal-El grew to manhood on Earth, whose yellow sun and lighter gravity gave him fantastic superpowers. In the city of Metropolis, he poses as TV newsman Clark Kent, but battles evil all over Earth and beyond as Superman. Superman in the Bronze Age is a weekly podcast following the adventures of Superman from 1970 to the Burn reboot in 1986. Follow along at supermaninthebronzeage.blogspot.com. And I'm happy to have a couple of emails to go over this week. The first one is from Michael Bradley. And he writes, I seem to recall not liking Action Comics number 847 at the time, though the delays at the time, I'm sure, colored my view of it. After hearing your rundown on it, I'm going to go back and read it again to see if I like it more. Though in your rundown, you pointed out a lot of things that make me think I won't. Bearing in mind, I haven't read the story since it came out. Two points. Well, one question and one point. Was the last time I faced a Sun Eater bit a reference to Final Night, or do you think it was? If it was, I'd say a lot of help and a lot of luck is a pretty accurate description, given that Superman was powerless at the time. Second, I'm sure that Pa's lie to Ma about the trip with Clark is not is is as out of character as you might think. It's not really a lie so much as not telling her something she really probably didn't want to hear to begin with. To me, that fits with Pa's character. We've seen him as we've seen him portrayed post crisis. Regarding Superman number six sixty, this I have reread more recently, sometime since the first of the year. And you're right, it's a lot of fun. I also appreciated that it was a standalone issue, which is something comics need more of these days, in my opinion. Anyway, keep up the good work at the sh- on the show, David. I'm enjoying the look at Superman the Animated Series. Good luck on the new twice-a-week format, too. More Superman-related audio to fill my ears. Signed, Michael Bradley. So let me address first the, the question about the Sun Eater. Yes, I think that was a reference to Final Night, in which, while well, you said it, a, l- a lot of luck, a little help really did the trick because yeah that was a dire situation i don't even know if i would call it luck just thank goodness hal jordan did what he did or we would have been toast or they would have been toast let's not cross the lines of reality here secondly pause lie to ma kent still bothers me i really tried to reason with it but it's just blatant uh why would Ma really have a problem with Pa going into space when, he, when he's with Clark? I mean, he's with one of the most power, powerful beings in the universe. What can really happen to him? I, I think what bothered me more was that she appreciated it. And I understand trying to be strong in front of your, your spouse, trying to not tell them things. I mean, omit, lie by omission is one thing. I'm not going to get into the morals, but blatantly saying, we're going ice fishing and going to space, it still bothers me. But that, I mean, that can be colored by perception, that's for sure. And I still, it's still, and I actually threw it out to my wife to, and kind of gave her the scenario, and she agreed completely that, yeah, you pocket wouldn't really lie. <laughs> it's one thing to try to 
calm Martha down in a bad situation, but not to blatantly lie when there's no danger really to be had or no danger perceived at that point. But yeah, I, I, and as far as Superman 660, I kept thinking about that issue. I really enjoyed it. 661 didn't hold up as well, but 660, that was fun. And I agree, we need more standalone issues because continuity heavy stuff, I mean, while I enjoy it, it doesn't necessarily bring in new fans. It, I remember when I was a kid, I could walk up to the grocery store and pick up an issue and somewhat follow what was going on, especially the older stuff. But now, unless you are entrenched in continuity, picking up a Superman, Batman book or Wonder Woman, it's gotten really tricky and really intimidating. Kind of like X-Men was back in the 80s before the reboot, before the semi-reboot in the 90s. It was so insular. It's a, a you know, a book that was among itself and so much so many dangling plot threads it was hard to even follow but i think at some point you know there needs to be more jumping on points but if it's geared towards trades now as it usually is they just assume that the people will pick it up in the mass market and make a note in the trade and the next email comes from michael bailey who you will know from the from crisis to crisis podcast presented by the superman homepage and he writes, Jay David, as always, I enjoyed the show. I'm really excited you are covering Superman the Animated Series, episode by episode. Jeffrey and I are planning on mentioning the show as we get to that time period over on From Crisis to Crisis, but nowhere near as in-depth as you're covering it. I look forward to your thoughts on future episodes. The one element that throws me off, that always throws me off a little bit when people cover this show is that they cover the first three episodes as separate shows, which makes sense considering that is how they were meant to be aired as individual episodes but the first time I saw them was on the night was on the night WB premiered the show with the most annoying host ever making quote funny during the joke commercial breaks. So I always see the origin as one big episode. And you make some good very good points even if they didn't bug me as much as you. Especially when it came to the Smallville sequences. It could have been it would have been nicer to see more of Clark's younger years, but that is balanced out by the awesome that is him discovering he can fly. All in all, I love these three, these, those three episodes. I think they are the best television version of the origin I have ever seen. On to Action Comics Annual Number 10. I have mixed feelings on this issue. On one hand, I do think that it was a very well-written, and I like the art through most of it. I agree with you about the Kubert chapter. I vividly remember this book coming out and being very excited for it. After rereading it a few months back, I realized that this book is very much the beginning of the problems I would have with the New Earth era. Those problems are, or I guess were, one, Lex Luthor's new motivation. I'm a big supporter of the theory that a villain should never think of themselves as a villain. I also believe that a villain should be credible, and the reader should understand their his or her motivation. The problem with the new Luthor is that while he doesn't think of himself as a villain on the whole, I, I could have been somebody, I could have been a contender, if not for Superman, approach is pretty weak, and the way they would continue to play him, he doesn't seem like a villain at all. It didn't help that most of Lex's appearance would feature him teaming up with Superman to defeat some greater threat. This doesn't strike me as a villain. I think All-Star Superman nailed it just right with the balance of Lex thinking that Superman is holding us back and him being just really freaking evil. The New Earth Lex seems more like a misguided character, not a villain, that, and that didn't sit well with me. 2. General Zod, Freedom Fighter I didn't have too much of a problem with Johns bringing Ursa and Non into the comics. I was disappointed when we got to the New Earth Krypton and Fortress of Solitude that Johns brought out the movie version. I wanted to see him reimagining Krypton for a new generation, but apparently his version of Krypton and all that comes from the movie. 
Don't get me wrong, I like the movies, and I don't mind bringing elements of other media into the comics. I just wanted something different, not something I had seen before. But seeing Ursa and Nam was kind of cool. The problem began with Zod's motivation. In the new Earth continuity, Zod was right and should not have been sent to the Phantom Zone. This is a cool twist, but takes out all of the teeth of him being a villain. Why should I want Superman to beat this guy when, in the end, he was wronged? It was a very, it was a bad way to start the new Zod off, even if it's a well-written chapter of the issue. Three, to Superboy or not to Superboy? I know that Warner Brothers was probably not wanting to DC to use the concept of Superboy, as in the Adventures of Superman when he was a boy, around this time for legal reasons. That doesn't change the fact that for several years there would be this up in the air question of whether Clark was Superboy or just saving people on the down low, maybe in costume, maybe not in costume. I understand them having to work around the legal issues, but I think it was a bit unfair to the reader to keep it so ambiguous for so long. I think a lot of the problems I have had with the new Earth Superman would have been solved if Secret Origin would have come out a few months after Infinite Crisis, but maybe that's just me. And that is pretty much it for this time. I'm now completely caught up with the show and looking forward to future installments. Keep up the great work, David. Regards, Mike. And I love Michael Bailey's uh, signature. This post was written by Michael Bailey, Superman Apologist. I just gotta say, there's no real need to apologize for Superman. Although I... I, and I'm sure other Superman fans, find themselves in that position to begin with quite often. More often than I think we should. So let's go ahead and go through... I'll, I'll just say the Superman the Animated Series is one episode. That was actually because I missed the premiere. I actually saw it on VHS. So I did see it that way, but I thought splitting it up episode by episode would give us time to really look at the different elements. Because it does, it is, or should have been, a more three-part act. And was spread out pretty well. But as far as Action Comics number 10, Lex Luthor's new motivation, if there's, I mean, this kind of ties in with Zod's as well. If there's anything to be said for the New Earth era, it's kind of the pansy era. It's sort of like, we don't want the villains to be all bad. We want the reader to relate. Okay, there's relatability. Uh, Lex Luthor in All-Star Superman, you kind of saw, to some extent, his point of view. Um, but it, that was the flaw that really drew me to that Lex is, yeah, I'm still evil, but I'm going to blame it on this. How many times as human beings have we fallen short and decided, well, I'm just going to say it's, it's this bum knee or this, this, in, you know, infirmity. But yeah, I agree with you completely. They really took some of the, some of the oomph out of those two villains because I really, as you said, I don't want General Zod to be beaten. I would like to see a peaceful conclusion, which I mean, Zod kind of developed some more teeth, during New Krypton, we kind of see a different side of him, but those three characters, when you look at them, they're not villains at all. You don't want Superman to fight with, fight against them. You want them to fight for him, for them. And that is kind of frustrating because I don't want to have to sympathize with the villain. I just want to see him get hit with the fists. And as far as Superboy, you, you nailed on something there about Secret Origin when it came out. I think almost everything in the New Earth era... I love the shipping problems. The reason this episode is so short is because of that. It could have been solved very easily just by putting that secret origin right up front. Do up, up, and away. And then that was eight eight parts. Have secret origin, which is six parts, run directly after that. We would have, lo- we would have minimized the fill-in issues that we had. Last Sun probably would have shipped on time. Camelot Falls would have been a little bit tighter rather than splitting it up. I think Secret Origin had it come out in 
uh, late 2006, early 2007, probably would have solved a lot of the problems we saw. But the main thing Johns did, and you mentioned it about Krypton, Johns didn't come in, like John Byrne did, sweep everything off the table and say, I'm going to create something new and different. What Johns really did was essentially say, I'm going to make it so that everything is included. And that doesn't really work if you're really trying to do a tight continuity. And that's just frustrating. So, I, I mean, your email brought up a lot of that stuff. And I'm going to talk a little bit about that more down the line. I also wanted to mention while we're on the subject of Michael Bailey that I will be on his show, Views from the Long Box, on episode 124 and 125, and we will be talking about something. I know Michael's got six pages of notes for the first part, and I've got about that equivalent. So it'll be a two-parter, and I encourage you to not only check out that episode, but check out Views from the Long Box if you like comics and you like frank discussions about them. So I'm looking forward to that. And as for this week, that pretty much wraps us up. I know this is going to be a shorter episode than normal. Normally with four books per month and more going into New Krypton, we're going to be, I mean, the review episodes will be a more substantial length, but obviously we only had two to cover and I'm not going to try to stretch this out awkwardly. So I'm going to wrap it up. And remember, you can always email the show at mail at supermanforever.com. I am, I am on Twitter. I am, I am at supermanforever.com. That is Superman, the number four, ever. Drop the dot com. Just Superman forever. And, of course, you can find me at supermanforever.com. I did want to make one last note as far as the Superman Forever Daily Planet. You may have noticed that it was slated to start Monday. I wanted to. I began recording. Under the pretense that the cable company, who told me they would come out and install my internet on Monday would do so. Assuming they had done the legwork, done the survey work, and everything was copacetic. It turns out when the installer got here, the cable had not been, had never been in my area. So I don't have internet until the 15th, so as far as uploading, I'm running over to other people's houses to upload the, the episodes that I'm doing now. Those will stay in until I get that back up and running, the daily thing. It's going to be a little bit tougher. So I apologize for that. Uh, I'm just really irked about the cable company thing because obviously doing an online podcast and website, I kind of need the internet. And I'm working off of the iPhone, which doesn't give me a lot of options in, in terms of the of what I can do. So forgive me. Uh, I'm going to put the blame on the cable company this time because that's where it is. They told me they'd done a site survey and everything was good to be installed, only to find out that they had blatantly lied. So bear with me on that. I do apologize. I don't I'm not happy about that. I'm actually very irked. It's a pretty contention for me. So so once again, mail at supermanforever.com. You can find me on Twitter at supermanforever. That's Superman the number forever. And of course, I'm on the Superman Podcast Network at www.supermanpodcastnetwork.com. And you will, once it will actually meet up again on Sunday, when we're going to be talking about the winner of the Metropolis Idol, which you chose. Yes, I know who it is. And we'll be announcing that and talking at length about them and their particular show. So I look forward to seeing you here on Sunday, and until then, keep on fighting the never-ending battle. Superman and all related characters, the distinctive likenesses thereof, and related elements are trademark of DC Comics, Warner Brothers Entertainment Company, 
This podcast is for entertainment purposes only and does not gain profit from the images or related properties belonging to DC Comics or Warner Brothers Entertainment. Superman was created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster.